Good morning. Our reading is from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. If you'd like a church Bible, please just pop your hand up and somebody will make that happen. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Well, let's pray as we uh, come to God's word. Father God, you've told us that your word will be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we're looking this morning at a path that is especially dangerous, at a path that all of us uh, walk down every day, we pray that we would be people who would be willing to be guided by that light uh, and that it would be keeping us safe as we walk down. Amen. So often when we come to the Bible, we're in a position of extraordinary privilege. The letters we read in the Bible are generally written to people who were in a worse situation than we are. These were new churches, of course. The faith was new. They had new church problems. They were figuring out what it means to come together as a community, figuring out who should do what. And most of the individual believers, of course, were pretty new to it as well. They were figuring things out as they went along. Certainly no one who read James's letter originally had read many of the other letters that we have collected for us so conveniently. On top of that, of course, the early church was often persecuted. A lot of the original readers of these letters would have been meeting in secret. They'd have been in fear of the authorities. And even for those who weren't, they were members of what was regarded as a new religion. Of course, we know that wasn't the case, but that's how it was seen. They'd have been treated with some hostility. Christianity was seen as a cult in those times. It would have alienated people from their communities, from their friends and from their families. So whether or not there was organized persecution, early Christians wouldn't have been comfortable. We're generally in a much better position than the people who read these letters. This morning's passage, though, is one of the very rare ones where, in my view, we're in a much worse position 
than the people who read this letter originally. James is giving instructions here on how to speak. And for almost all of his readers, speech would have been the only way they would have communicated on a day-to-day basis. A lot of his original audience would have been illiterate. Or if they were literate, they were functionally literate. They would be able to read and write for their work, but they weren't writing letters for fun. They weren't corresponding with each other in that way. Their communication would have been limited to what they said, and it would have been limited to whoever was in earshot. That's just not the world we find ourselves in, is it? From the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed, we can communicate, not just with people within the range of our voices. I'm speaking now to people who are not in this room, on the live stream. At the push of a button, any one of us can speak with anyone all around the world, if we have their number, through voice calls or video calls. Or we can write to them through email or text or WhatsApp or insert name of messenger here. And that's more dangerous because we lose tone of voice. We lose body language. It's much more prone to misinterpretation, uh, although, as I've already demonstrated this morning, uh, it's always capable of uh, misinterpreting even a very clear gesture to stay on the stage. Um, And, of course, um, we can post our thoughts on social media for anyone who's interested, in which case it's in writing with all of the problems that come with that, and also it's out there forever. It could be seen by anyone, and it could be seen years after we originally wrote it. We're communicating so much more than these first century Christians would have been. We're communicating with a much wider group of people than these first century Christians would have been. And we're communicating in so many more ways and with all the attendant problems that go with it. And that gives us a huge amount to be more careful about. So although the passage this morning talks about the tongue, as we're going through, I want you also to think about the fingers that are typing. I want you also to think about the thumbs that are texting or posting a message on social media. Because actually the point that James is making isn't about the format, it's not about the delivery, it's about the words. Because, says James, words are powerful things. And he actually points us to two ways um, that they're particularly powerful. Firstly, verses 3 and 4. Words can be used to influence. You put a bit in the mouth of a horse and you can make it go whichever way you want. You put a rudder on a ship and you can steer it even though the wind wants to push it in a straight line. That's the picture that James is giving us. He's showing us the power that words have to steer things, to influence. And we know this is true, right? We see this on every scale. The state-owned Russian media, for example, even this morning, will be broadcasting messages about neo-Nazis in Ukraine. It'll be broadcasting messages about provocations that Ukraine made to Russia to try and justify what they've done, their invasion. They're attempting to influence the audience at home so that that audience will continue to support the war. Closer to home, you might remember Cambridge Analytica. Uh, This was a consultancy firm that was able to use Facebook data to really, really precisely target certain categories of people in certain areas with internet and social media adverts. There was, and there still is, a huge amount of discussion about the effect that that had on certain key votes 
uh, in US and UK general elections, for example. It's a colossal business at the moment, using words to influence. If you want to get good or bad reviews for a product on Amazon, if you want to get something trending on Twitter, if you want some information, or dare I say some misinformation, on a topic to be written about on 100 blogs and websites and pushed into people's Facebook feeds so that you can change people's minds, you can have it. If you can afford it, you can have it. You can go out and buy that this morning. And if you're not that crazy about the internet, well, there's 30 news channels, right? Just keep flicking through them until you find the one that appeals to you, the one that backs up the views that you already have, the one that's seeking to steer you in a direction that you like. When James used the examples of horses and ships and powerful winds, he was thinking of the biggest, most powerful things he could think of. And he was showing how something so small could change their course. That's the point he's making this morning. Words may seem small to us, but they have immense power to influence. They have immense power to change the direction of an individual, of a society. They still have that power. They're still just as strong as they were when James was writing. And now we've made all these incredibly efficient ways to deliver them to the people who are going to be most susceptible to that influence. So that's the first power of words. They can be used to influence. There's a second power that James points to in verses 5 and 6. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Yes, the tongue at our words might feel small, might feel inconsequential, but they can do huge damage, just as a tiny spark can burn down an entire forest. That damage might be to others, or, verse 6, it might be our own life that's set on fire by our own words. It's difficult to give a famous example here. I thought long and hard about it. But anything I say is very quickly going to get into areas where we don't necessarily all agree with each other. If I talk about a celebrity who got cancelled or lost a job because they said something, some of us might get hung up on our feelings about that particular incident. And that's not really the point this morning. Whether that was an overreaction, misunderstanding, justified, doesn't matter really. Let's take it away from the celebrity level. Let's think about real-life, day-to-day situations. Each of us may well know someone who has lost a job because they've said the wrong thing at the wrong time. We might know people who have blown an interview, lost an opportunity because of the wrong words. Closer to home, we probably do know people whose relationships with friends or even family have been damaged because of words that they've said. We probably do know people who couldn't resist making a dig about something at the wrong time. We probably do know people who, when they were speaking about something, didn't show the sympathy that was needed. And we probably do know people who, through the wrong words at the wrong time, have ruined relationships. If we're honest, there's probably people in our own lives who we spend less time with because of the way that they use their words. There's probably people in our own lives who we know, if we see them, it won't be enjoyable for us. They'll spend the whole visit picking holes or boasting or doing a number of other things that they could do with their own words. Their tongues have set their lives on fire. People are spending less time with them because of what they say, 
because of their language, because of their communication. And of course, our words can be damaging to other people. I strongly suspect that when James talks about the forest fire, um, I think what he's talking about was gossip. Maybe a specific issue within the churches that he was writing to, or maybe just a general warning. Gossip starts small. It can seem innocent. It might not even feel like we're gossiping when we tell the first person, right? Just like the forest fire, though, it spreads. It goes from tree to tree. Before you know it, lots of people know. Lots of people are seeing the target of that gossip differently. Things they do might therefore be misinterpreted. Lots of people start to treat them differently. The reason why I think this is because it's not just a concern of James's. Time and again in the Bible, we see gossip come up in the list of bad behaviours. If you turn up any of those lists that you can think of, gossip is probably on there. Or it might be under the heading slander. Doing someone down, talking bad about someone. That's what we translate as slander. That's generally on there. So why is the Bible always having to tell God's people not to gossip? Why is the Bible so keen to emphasize to the churches that we shouldn't be speaking badly about our brothers and sisters? Well, one of the wonderful things about churches is that they draw people together who probably wouldn't otherwise be together. People from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all ages. We form relationships within churches that we probably wouldn't form outside of churches. They look quite unlikely viewed from the outside. But to us, they're completely natural because they're based on a shared love of Jesus. They're based on loving Jesus' people, loving God's people, and wanting to be with them, wanting to serve each other, wanting to look out for each other and build each other up. That's how it's been for churches all down through the ages. We see it from Acts onwards. People from all backgrounds are drawn together and form these communities because in God, there's no distinction between races. There's no distinction between social statuses. But sometimes we lose sight of God's priorities, don't we? Sometimes we stop prioritizing God's people over our worldly concerns. And then we see the differences. Then we see the things that we don't like about our fellow believers. And that, I think, is why gossip is such a big concern within churches. That's why it's so easy for us to speak badly about our fellow believers. And that's when our words become weapons. And of course, when a forest is set on fire, you can't control where that's going to go. These sorts of issues can become massive within churches. People take sides. Sometimes people leave. In the worst cases, churches split. So that's why I think it's such a big concern for James. That's why I think it's such a big concern for so many uh, of the writers throughout the Bible. For the Spirit, it's a big concern. So that's the problem, says James. Words are extremely powerful, and we underestimate them. We think they're small, but they can influence and they can harm. So what's the solution? How are we going to sort it out? Well, maybe not necessarily the way we think. James has already hinted at this in verse 2, where he says that anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect. Implication, who's that then? He's a bit more colourful in verse 6, describing the tongue as a fire, a world of evil. 
and a corrupter of the whole body. But it's in verses 7 and 8 that he really brings it home. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. We can make them do what we want. But no human being can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the typing fingers. No human being can tame the texting thumb. They are restless evils. They are full of deadly poison. It's not encouraging, is it? But it's important that we clock this. We cannot tame these things. We cannot get ourselves to the point where we are in complete control of them at all times. We are never going to. Full stop. That's James's message. So that means that we need to treat this a bit differently from some of the things that we might think about in our lives. It's not just a case of trying harder. It's not just a case of praying about it. There's something different that James recommends here. Flick back with me, please, to chapter 1 and verse 19. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Slow to speak. Verse 26, uh, he makes the same point. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues. Deceive themselves, a tight rein. That's how you control the horse. You stop them going with a tight rein. You pull back. It's our natural instinct to look at a passage like this morning's and think, well, I can do it. I can try. I can push on through to look at the pictures in verses 10 to 12 and think, okay, more praise, less cursing. Got it. More fresh, less salt. Done. But James is saying that's impossible for us to do. We can't just decide to get it right because we can't get it right every time. We can't tame the tongue. Now, what James is saying is this. What we must do is accept that the tongue is dangerous. What we must do is accept that our words are powerful, influential, and we must accept that by nature we will use them badly. By nature, they will be evil. We must treat our words like the dangerous thing they are. We must tread carefully. Someone Natalie used to work with um, told us the story once, I'm not vouching for the truth of it, that she used to have a pet snake, a python. Unusual choice, but okay. Um, pythons are big snakes, as, as we know. And her flat at that time was quite small. So she couldn't have a big enough tank that he could live comfortably in. She had a very small tank that she put him in when people were coming round, and otherwise he just had the run of the place. That included overnight. And one morning she woke up, uh, and her pet snake was lying next to her in bed. Absolutely straight, stiff as a board, and barely breathing. When she thought about it, she realised he'd been off his food for a couple of days as well. So, of course, she panicked, as you would with any pet, no matter how unusual, she took him to the vet. After a bit of examination, after asking a few questions, the vet told her that her beloved pet python had decided to eat her. Apparently, this is a behaviour common to, to snakes like this. When they spot something big that they want to eat, they starve themselves for a few days so that they can, you know, work up the appetite... And that's why he'd been off his food. And then, genuinely, they stretch out next to the thing that they're intending to eat to make sure they're long enough to fit the whole thing in. 
There we are. Um, Nat's colleague had been so comfortable with this snake. It was her pet. It was her friend. And it had never occurred to her that at the end of the day, it was still a wild animal. And it would eat her if it could. And I think that's where we are with our words. I think that's we are, where we are with our communication. Do we really treat our tongues, like James says here, as a restless evil, as a poison, as something set on fire by hell? Are we really just keeping guard, keeping a close watch, allowing them out only under supervision, or have we forgotten it? Have we gotten a bit too comfortable? Do we feel like we've got it under control? Well, that's the challenge this morning for us, isn't it? Because there's no doubt that we need to use our words. There's no question that if we're walking the path God's laid out for us, we're specifically told to speak for a number of reasons. We have to spread the gospel, for one thing. And fine, it doesn't just mean speaking. The way we live is also important. But if we're living as witness to our friends, eventually we're going to have to tell them why we're different. We're going to have to tell them the gospel. We're also specifically told in several of Paul's letters that we should be using our voices in this context to build each other up. And of course, James himself in verse 9 makes it clear that we can use our words to praise the Lord, and we should. No one can be in perfect control of their tongue and always say the right thing. Fundamentally, our instincts just don't allow it. If we don't control what we say, we'll do damage to ourselves and to each other, but we can't all take a vow of silence. Too much of what we're called to do needs us to be speaking. So that's what James is telling us this morning. Keep a tight rein. Keep close control. Be slow to speak. Consider what you're going to say before you say it. I apologise in advance if our tea and coffee time after the service is the absolute worst. But there is encouragement for us in this passage too. So let's quickly have a look at that before we finish. Let's unpack the pictures at the end in verses 11 and 12. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Well, no. Simple. Up to this point in the passage, you could almost have seen this whole section on use of the tongue as a bit of an aside something that was on James's mind, but which didn't really tie in to the main point of his letter or the main thrust of it. But these pictures bring us right back to what he's been saying in the earlier chapters. Why does a fresh, uh, excuse me, why does a fresh water spring produce fresh water? Well, because under the ground, there's fresh water. Why does a fig tree bear figs? Well, because in its genetic code, it's a fig tree. It's a tree that produces figs. It's not a tree that produces olives. So that's the picture that James is painting here. The words we produce are the water. The words we produce are the fruit. They're a reflection of what's unseen. They're a reflection of what's under the ground. They're a reflection of the type of tree we are. In Matthew 15, Jesus said that the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And that's what defiles them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. And we know from our previous sermons on this letter that James's main concern here is spiritual maturity. He was writing to early believers, encouraging them to come through, to grow and mature, to become deeper rooted in the faith, 
And he's pointing out to them what will happen as that happens. What shows that we're growing? Well, our relationships will change. We heard that a couple of weeks ago. We won't be swayed by the world's view of someone, rich or poor. We won't sit by when our brothers and sisters have needs to be met. And when we're spiritually mature, our faith will be clear in what we do. It won't just be empty words. Now James is telling us this morning that another marker of spiritual maturity is how we speak. As our hearts change, what comes out of our mouths changes too. As we stop being a saltwater spring and become a freshwater spring, we will produce fresh water. Not perfectly. Not every time. We can get more mature, but this side of heaven we're always falling. We're always going to be imperfect. But as we grow in our faith, as the Spirit does his work in us, we know that our hearts change. The list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is this. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the Spirit does its work, as we persevere in trials, as we come through to spiritual maturity, those things will increase in our hearts. That's the promise. And what's in our hearts is what comes out of our mouths. So as the Spirit changes our hearts, it will become clear in the way that we speak. If we're speaking more lovingly, more joyfully, more kindly, more gently, it'll be clear. It'll be clear to us and to others around us that we're becoming more spiritually mature. I'm sure we're all thinking, even as I speak, of some of the more mature Christians that we've known, or that we know now, of the love and the joy that comes out of their mouths, because that's what's in their hearts, that's what the Spirit has put there, of how measured they are in how they speak when things get serious. Not jumping in, but considering what they say. Of how they listen to our problems and offer sympathy, rather than jumping in with something worse that happened to them. That's the promise for all of us, if we're in Jesus. That's the Spirit working in their lives and helping us to grow in those ways will be refined, will be improved, will be made more like Jesus. And as that happens, the way we speak will reflect it too. That's the reason, incidentally, for the warning in verse 1 about who should become a teacher. It's not about making sure we choose the right words when we teach, although, of course, that's a heavy responsibility, uh, and that's why I bring my notes up with me. But if we're on the stage, if we're leading in a home group, if we're teaching children, if we're meeting one-to-one... Whether we like it or not, whether we'd necessarily describe ourselves in this way, we're implying to some extent that we're spiritually mature. That's what we're saying if we're, if we're claiming that we're able to teach others. So if we're not able to talk the talk, if we're not aware of the damage that our words can do, if we're not treating them like the dangerous things that they are, then we shouldn't be in that position. That's the warning in verse 1. That's the higher standard. The, the judged more harshly that James is talking about. It's the same idea as, as we see in other letters when we talk about the qualifications for leaders and elders. We're meant to be models, to some extent, of what it looks like to be spiritually mature. And James's point this morning is about language. So let's wrap up. There are two things we can do um, to solve this problem of our words. It's not realistic to expect that we only ever say good things and never bad things. But it is realistic to do all the things that the Spirit encourages us to do to come to spiritual maturity 
and solve the problem that way over the long term. We can study God's word in the Bible. And as James said in chapter 1, when the study shows us what we look like, we can do something about it rather than walking away and forgetting. We can pray for wisdom and we can commit ourselves to doing what that wisdom tells us to do rather than praying for wisdom and then we'll decide later on if we actually want to implement it or not. And as we do those things, as we mature, as what's in our hearts changes, what comes out of our mouths will change too. And while that process is going on, we can keep it in mind that these are not trivial things, these words. These are not as small as they appear. They're powerful. By nature, we will use them badly. We will damage ourselves. We will damage others. And so perhaps we can all add to our prayer lives, as the psalmist did, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep a watch over the door of my lips.